Hello, and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp Podcast. The podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century, and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty, Queen Victoria. Episode 3, Every Man Will Do His Duty. Horatio Nelson was born on the 29th of September 1758 in a rectory in Burnham Norfolk in England, the sixth of 11 children of the Reverend Edmund Nelson and his wife Catherine Suckling. I'm sure that many of you already know who I'm talking about, but in researching this episode I started out not wanting to cover too much about Nelson's pre-1800 activity but some of it is just so awesome I couldn't leave it out. After attending grammar schools in North Walsham and Norwich, it was on January 1st, 1771 that Nelson began his naval career. His uncle, Maurice Suckling, was captain of the HMS Razanabal, and it was here that young Horatio started his life on the sea. Because nepotism never goes out of style, and he was soon made a midshipman, because hey, nepotism. But what I did find interesting was that a man who epitomised being a Royal Naval Officer suffered from chronic seasickness throughout his whole life. How ironic is that? Kind of like how Clint Eastwood found out that he was allergic to horses years after making all those Western movies. After contracting malaria in 1776, Nelson returned to England, and by this time his uncle Maurice was now Comptroller of the Navy. What's a Comptroller? Well, I'm glad you asked. Nelson was returning home to England and finding that his uncle, the aforementioned Maurice Suckling, was basically in charge of all the finances of the Royal Navy. So, through his uncle's patronage, Nelson then finds himself being made an acting lieutenant aboard the HMS Worcester. I think I got that one right. So, thanks Uncle Murray. Always a helping hand. But for all that I can accuse him of receiving favours because of who his uncle was, there's no denying that young Horatio was a very talented officer. As his career was just going from strength to strength, it was around 1784 that Horatio met Francis Nesbitt. Known as Fanny, she was a young widow from a plantation in the Caribbean. Offered a massive dowry, Horatio became engaged to Fanny, only to find out later that said amount wasn't anywhere near what was actually received. Hmm. In these times, breaking an engagement, though, was a socially taboo act. So Nelson continued with the nuptials and married Fanny on the 11th of March, 1787. Nelson's friend, William Henry, who had been a lieutenant under Nelson and who later went on to captain the HMS Pegasus, insisted on giving the bride away and also signed as the witness. William's opinion of Mrs. Nelson is quoted as being pretty and sensible. So that's nice, I guess. Mm. I'm sure Horatio was happy having William involved in the wedding because I did leave something out there. The William Henry I'm referring to was actually Prince William Henry. He was the son of King George IV. Yes, Horatio Nelson had the Crown Prince of the United Kingdom in his wedding ceremony. 
networking does pay off. It is pretty much, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Now, even though I'm sure that that did play a factor, there's no denying that Nelson had a natural gift, a genius even, for naval tactics. And it was in 1793, as war with France began, that he was given command of the 64-gun laden ship, the HMS Agamemnon. No matter who you know or what your connections are, they're not going to give you a ship like the Agamemnon just because you're good friends with the Crown Prince. So you could see that those in command within the Royal Navy were obviously giving this ship to a man that was more than capable of captaining her. And he was just 35 years old. He also, on this ship, brought his stepson, Josiah, as a midshipman. There's your nepotism again, maybe, but okay. Now, it's all very well, as I've been doing, to disparage the man, his favoritism. But in 1794, during the Battle of Corsica, while leading from the front, naturally, a shot hit nearby sandbags and the debris cost Nelson his right eye. You might be able to start seeing a pattern here because, of course, he kept fighting. In 1796, he was made captain of the HMS Captain, and in 1797, at the Battle of Cape St. Vincent off the coast of Portugal, his bold and order-defying manoeuvres were the stuff of legend. Uh, relating it to modern day, he's basically the Captain James Kirk of his time. With his 74 guns and assisted by the 74 from the HMS Culloden, Nelson took on the French allied Spanish ships of the 112-gunned San Josef, the 80-gunned San Nicolas, and the 130-gunned Santisma Trinidad. Now, just to work that out, that means that Nelson's got 148 guns on his side versus 322. They had a full hour of exchanging broadsides can you imagine that? More than double the guns against you and you're still alive an hour later on? I find that just boggling. At one point, Nelson actually found himself alongside the San Nicolas. Not content with defying orders to begin with, he led a boarding party across, crying Westminster Abbey or glorious victory and forced her to surrender. The San Josef then tried to help but in a massive fail, became entangled with her compatriot and was left immobile. Nelson, being the total boss he clearly was, then led his away crew on the San Josef and captured her as well. So that night, as the Spanish fleet broke off, four of the ships had surrendered that day, and two of them to Captain Horatio Nelson himself. Promoted to Rear Admiral, because hey, nothing spells promotion like unmitigated success in a critical naval battle, he continued leading from the front, and at the Battle of St. Cruz de Tenerife in 1797, he gave more for the Empire when he lost most of his right arm. Hit by grape shot and taken to the surgeon, he is quoted as saying, the sooner it was off, the better. 30 minutes later, you guessed it, he's back on the deck, issuing orders. Interestingly, Nelson's later experiences with phantom limb syndrome led him to have a belief that he found direct evidence of the soul. I find that like a fascinating side note, just how much that changed his worldview. But while the campaign against Napoleon was a defeat for the English, because of his status and the injuries that he had sustained, Nelson was still lionized and seen as a national hero. 
But sadly, by this point, Horatio was a broken man. He was injured, he'd lost his eye, lost his arm, but fortunately, his wife Fanny was there to help him with his recovery. And less than a year later, Nelson was fighting as the captain of the HMS Vanguard against the Napoleonic forces in what has become known as the Battle of the Nile. Preparing for battle, Nelson repeated a sentiment he had expressed at the Battle of Cape St. Vincent that, quote, Before this time tomorrow, I shall have gained a peerage or Westminster Abbey, end quote. Given their positions, the French didn't expect Nelson to attack, yet the captain ordered his ships to do so. And long story short, Nelson and his ships managed to evade capture, but the fact that Nelson managed to force this action at all cannot be underestimated. This area was incredibly important strategically. Napoleon had deliberately provoked the English to fight here, because he felt attempting to invade their island was a no-win situation. But here on the Nile, Napoleon thought he could win. That his ships had to flee meant the crushing of the Corsicans' ambitions in this region. In fact, some historians regard Nelson's achievement at the Nile as the most significant of his career, even greater than that at Trafalgar seven years later. The United Kingdom had been living with the very real threat of invasion from Napoleon and the French, so the news that spread across England that Nelson and the English fleet had forced them to flee was met with a huge celebration and adulation for the intrepid Captain Horatio Nelson. In 1798, Nelson was then sent to Naples, which in those days was a separate kingdom and not actually part of a country like Italy, and it was here that he met Lady Emma Hamilton. Her husband, Sir William Hamilton, was the English ambassador to the kingdom. And when Nelson was celebrating his birthday in Naples in September, the lovely Lady Emma came to his attention. Now, it was while staying in Naples during October that news of the Battle of the Nile made its way back home. Now, I can't overstate enough just how important this was to the English people. And I've mentioned it there before, but here's some extra. The First Lord of the Admiralty, Earl Spencer reportedly fainted on hearing the news. He was that happy. Now, Spencer, you may have heard that name before, because he was Lady Diana, Princess of Wales, great, great, great grandfather. There you go, the things you learn. Balls, feasts, celebrations were held across the country, and the city of London awarded Nelson and his captains swords, that is, ceremonial weapons for achievement. Now, King George III, I'm sure you remember him at this point, he ordered them to be presented with special medals. The Tsar of Russia sent a gift, and Selim III, Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, awarded Nelson the Order of the Turkish Crescent for his role in restoring Egypt to their empire. That's a little bit of irony, but while some thought Nelson would gain a viscountcy, Earl Spencer argued that while only in command of a squadron and not the fleet, the precedent would be unacceptable, and thus Horatio was made Baron Nelson of the Nile, which I still think looks pretty good on a business card if you ask me. Other events in Naples meant the recall in 1800 of Sir William Hamilton to England, and Nelson accompanied the couple on their travels home. Now, it's believed that it was on this journey that Lady Emma became pregnant with Horatio's daughter. Now, I know this all sounds a little bit tacky and sordid, but bear this in mind, okay? Nelson's achievements 
while astounding had taken their toll. Lost arm, lost eye, he had a racking cough, had lost most of his teeth, but he was still a man to whom Lady Emma flung herself in admiration as she fainted in excitement. See, it's not how you look, it's what you're famous for. Some things never seem to change. Anyway, Sir William Hamilton was 35 years older than his wife and in failing health. Never having given Lady Emma a child, and there are those that believe he may have been sterile and possibly encouraged the affair. Despite that sort of positive speculation, Horatio and Emma were all over the newspapers of the time and scandalising society in London. Today, we'd see them all over social media with a hashtag. We both know that. But before we get too judgy, upon their November 1800 arrival in London, the three took suites at a hotel. So there may have been some degree of agreement from all of them, I think. And it was there that they met Horatio's father and also Lady Fanny Nelson. Understandably, Fanny was unhappy to see that Emma was pregnant. Hashtag surprise. Now, despite what you might think, though, Emma was still seen in a more positive light by the newspapers at the time, and many of the upper-class women in London were imitating her look. Not the pregnancy part, just the style of dress that she wore and brought back from the continent. Also, and another point we may need to concede towards a general consensus for the relationship, despite being lampooned in the press, Sir William continued to dote on his wife and was clearly still very attached to her. Some relationships just refuse to be defined, I guess, and that's kind of cool. January 1st, 1801 sees Nelson promoted within the Vice Admiralty and he was due to go to sea literally that night. And yet the mighty naval warrior had been given an ultimatum by his wife with regards to their marriage. For all his prowess on the sea and unquestionable bravery, events had sadly escalated to the point where, according to Nelson's solicitor, Fanny wrote to her husband on their marriage, to which Nelson replied, I love you sincerely, but I cannot forget my obligations to Lady Hamilton or speak of her otherwise than with affection and admiration. Ouch. Surprisingly, the two never lived together again after this. Infuriated by Fanny's handing him an ultimatum to choose between her and his mistress, Nelson chose Emma and decided to take steps to formalise separation from his wife. He never saw her again. While away at sea, Nelson and Emma exchanged many letters using a secret code to discuss Emma's pregnancy. And while they were obviously in love, there was one secret that Lady Emma had kept hidden from Horatio. You see, Emma had been married prior to Sir William and had had a daughter who was also named Emma. And it was this daughter that Horatio had no knowledge of. 
Sir William did, however, and he continued to financially provide for the younger Emma, regardless of Lady Emma's, quote, condition. Like I said, some relationships just refuse that definition. Now, some things also to keep in mind here. Nelson had been told his wife had had a considerable dowry, which turned out to be a lie. And there is also the possibility that Fanny was infertile and that this was kept from him. On the other side, Sir William was much older than his wife, and reports indicate his wanting of a wife was more about companionship rather than any sort of physical soulmate. Lady Emma had been in a financially difficult position when she decided to become Sir William's mistress long before they were married. Nothing is ever as simple as it first seems, and welcome to looking back at history. And it was on the 29th of January 1801 that we see the birth of Horatia Nelson. At the time, Nelson was preparing to sail to what would become known as the Battle of Copenhagen. I might cover that at some later point because, hey, how often does England attack Denmark? But suffice to say, it had to do with the French access to European ports and the English not wanting this to happen. Because, you know, it's France. By April, Nelson was advancing into Copenhagen Harbour. The fleet was under command of Admiral Hyde Parker, and Nelson, Vice Admiral Nelson, was second in command. The battle began badly for the British, with heavier fire than expected. Admiral Parker sent a signal for Nelson to withdraw. Now, wait for it, because this is his reasoning, and the Admiral is on record as saying at the time that, quote, I will make the signal for recall for Nelson's sake. If he is in a condition to continue the action, he will disregard it. If he is not, it will be an excuse for his retreat and no blame can be attached to him. So again, going with the Star Trek reference, this is not only James Kirk having Starfleet giving him latitude, they're backing him regardless of what he does. So when Kirk, I mean Nelson, was informed of this signal, he responded thusly, quote, I told you to look out on the Danish Commodore and let me know when he surrendered. Keep your eyes fixed on him, end quote. And if that wasn't bold enough, he then turns to his flag captain, Thomas Foley, and says, quote, You know, Foley, I have only one eye. I have a right to be blind sometimes, end quote. He then raises the telescope to his blind eye and says, I really do not see the signal. That's from a number of sources as well. And hey, we already said Horatio was a boss. Three hours later, Nelson is sending a dispatch to Crown Prince Frederick calling for a truce, which was accepted. Nelson was given the honour of going first into Copenhagen to open formal negotiations. In addition to that honour, as a reward for the victory Nelson was made a Viscount Nelson of the Nile and of Burnham Thorpe in the county of Norfolk. Moving on from that success, it was a couple of years later in April of 1803 that Sir William Hamilton died. In May, Horatia was christened as Horatia Nelson Thompson. Now, why did Horatia have Thompson as a surname? Well, because Vice Admiral Charles Thompson was a friend of Horatio's. And to observe the social forms of the day and not publicly exposed, 
expose the publicly known non-secret affair that Horatio and Emma were having if the child was regarded as Vice Admiral Thompson's meant that she would not be seen as a publicly scandalous love child. So everyone knows, but everyone's got a way of looking away. Yeah, works out. And Emma and Horatio were actually cited in the birth documents as Horatio's godparents. Then, at a later point, once the Vice Admiral had died, Emma and Horatio adopted the now, quote, orphan Horatio as their own. Now, by all accounts, Nelson had been genuinely delighted at Horatio's birth. He apparently was even more appreciative of his daughter after he and Emma sadly lost another girl a few weeks after her birth in 1803. During the years between 1803 and 1805, Nelson spent as much time as he could with his family at their home in Merton Place. While working on a naval blockade in the Mediterranean of the French in 1805, Admiral Pierre-Charles Villeneuve escaped the blockade and slipped through headed for the West Indies. Now, Nelson was in this blockade, of course, and he gave chase all the way across the Atlantic. Can you imagine doing something like that back in those days with those ships? You're the captain of one of the strongest ships in the greatest naval force in the world, and your target flees, and you give chase across the world. Nelson didn't catch him, though. Upon his arrival in the Caribbean, Villeneuve lazed around for a while, doing nothing much, and after a rest, he headed home, actually completely missing Nelson's pursuit. Nelson expected to be reprimanded upon returning home, but to his surprise, he was greeted by a celebrating populace and senior officials congratulating him on his dogged pursuit of the French. English society believed that in continuing his pursuit, Nelson had forced Villeneuve to return home and thus prevented Villeneuve from actually invading the West Indies and establishing it as a French colony. Some people have all the luck in the way their actions get viewed, don't they? But then news came in September that the French and the Spanish had combined their naval forces in Cadiz. Rushing back to London, Nelson was given command of the fleet to block this force. In one of the meetings concerning strategy, Nelson met Major General Arthur Wellesley. Now, Wellesley later recalled that Nelson, quote, entered at once into a conversation with me, if I can call it a conversation, for it was almost all on his side, all about himself, and in reality, a style so vain and so silly as to surprise and almost disgust me. End quote. Shortly after that meeting, Nelson left the room and was then apparently told as to whom he had been speaking to. He reportedly returned and entered into a sincere discussion with Wellesley, which lasted only 15 minutes, but left a marked impression on Wellesley. It was actually the only time the two men ever met. And who was Arthur Wellesley? Well, he doesn't have the title yet. But later on, he will become the Duke of Wellington. Why such an award? Because he's the man that defeats Napoleon at Waterloo. And he thinks that's another podcast. But with all these blockades, confrontations and chest puffing, you just know things are going to happen. Battles were coming and Horatio knew it. On October 19th, 1805... 
Nelson wrote to his daughter, saying, quote, My dearest angel, I was made happy by the pleasure of receiving your letter of September 19, and I rejoice to hear that you are so very good a girl and love my dear Lady Hamilton, who most dearly loves you. Give her a kiss for me. The combined fleets of the enemy are now reported to be coming out of Cadiz, and therefore I answer your letter, my dearest Horatia, to mark to you that you are ever uppermost in my thoughts. I shall be sure of your prayers for my safety, conquest and speedy return to dear Merton and our dearest good lady Hamilton. Be a good girl, mind what Miss Connor says to you. Receive, my dearest Horatia, the affectionate paternal blessing of your father. And it was two days later that the Battle of Trafalgar began. This episode had actually started out as a synopsis of one of the early famous figures of the 18th century. That's leading me down a lot of paths where I'm going to have to cover later on, but I'm trying to keep just to what we've got here at the moment. I guess this is what you call biting off more than you can chew in one podcast. But we're here now, and like Admiral Nelson, we're not backing down. On the 21st of October, 1805, 27 British ships led by Nelson went to war against the 33 ships of the Spanish and French off the southwest coast of Spain. The French and Spanish forces were led by Pierre-Charles Villeneuve, yes, the same man that Horatio had chased across the world. The battle was fought on the southwest corner of Spain just near Cape Trafalgar. Now remember, Nelson's got 27 ships and the opposition has 33. I'm not going to get too much into battle tactics because it doesn't really work all that well for a podcast, but suffice to say at the time, the tactical orthodoxy was that enemies engaged in parallel lines. This allowed for easy signalling to allied ships, but it also meant that ships could easily break away and often led to inconclusive battles. So, do we think that the James T. Kirk of the 1800s was down for that? And as we say down here at the far end of the empire, yeah, nah. Our hero decided to approach in two columns, thus allowing him to divide the opposing forces. One of the advantages of this is that it prevented many of the French-Spanish ships from seeing signals from Villeneuve's flagship, the Boussentour, and keeping them out of the fight. This split-column approach also meant that Nelson's forces approached as fast as possible and reduced the chance that the enemy could escape. Nelson didn't want that standoff, he wanted that win. Forcing a close proximity battle also meant that fighting would be in a melee and ship-to-ship actions. I'm no military expert by any means, but Nelson certainly was. And the man in command knew his forces, knew their abilities, and probably most importantly, trusted his men. He knew that their seamanship, their gunnery skills, and their morale was superior to the Franco-Spanish forces. The quick intrusion among the ships meant that the powerful front forces of the enemy were now having to turn and catch up with the battle. In addition, they were unable to fire because of the risk to their own ships, and to top it all off, they were also still vulnerable to English broadsides. 
The main risk to Nelson's fleet was that as they approached in parallel formation, they themselves were at risk of a raking broadside. Again, against convention, Nelson ordered all ships to maximum sail. <coughs> maximum warp, Scotty. <coughs> yes, well. Here, the canny admiral was taking the well-calculated risk due to the fact that he knew the French and Spanish gunners were ill-trained and in the heavy swells would have difficulty firing. In the final moments before combat, Nelson sent his final instructions. He then instructed his signal officer to signal that England confides that every man will do his duty. Signal officer Lieutenant John Pascoe then suggested to Nelson that the word expects be substituted for confides. Since the former word was in the signal book, whereas confides would have to be spelt out letter by letter, Nelson agreed to that change. So while confides or confident might have been better as a motto, it does show that Nelson was goal-orientated rather than self-orientated here. The word had to get out as soon as possible, and it did. And on those swollen seas, the pride of England roared. Nelson was on board the HMS Victory with ship's captain Thomas Hardy. He had received a request that he move to one of the other ships in a position that he could make a better assessment of the battle as it continued. Of course, he declined this. And given free reign, Hardy chose to engage the Bucentaur. This was Villeneuve's ship, and as sharpshooters from the French ship fired down upon the deck, Nelson and Hardy continued to calmly walk the deck, directing and giving orders. At 1pm, as the war raged, Hardy turned to talk to Nelson, and he found that the Admiral was not there. Looking over, he saw Nelson supporting himself with his hand, before falling onto his side. Rushing to the Admiral's aid, Horatio is quoted as saying, Hardy, I do believe they have done it at last. My backbone is shot through. The Admiral had been hit by a shooter on the Redoubtable at a range of 50 feet, or 15 metres, so it gives you some idea of just how close these ships were fighting at. The bullet entered his left shoulder, struck his spine and lodged behind his right shoulder blade. Nelson was carried below deck, and as this was done, he asked those carrying him to pause, where he gave some advice to a midshipman on the handling of the tiller. He then draped a handkerchief over his face so that he would avoid alarming the crew if they had seen him injured. Made comfortable, Nelson was given lemonade and watered wine to drink and asked Dr. William Beatty to remember him to his Emma, his daughter and his friends. At half past two, Captain Hardy came down to see Nelson and he informed the wounded Admiral that a number of ships had surrendered. Nelson was sure he was going to die and asked that his possessions be passed on to Emma and then he said, kiss me Hardy. It's recorded that Hardy knelt and kissed Nelson on the cheek, stood, then kissed his forehead. Nelson asked then who was there 
and he heard it was Hardy, he said, God bless you, Hardy. By now extremely weak, he was heard to murmur, Thank God I have done my duty. Fading fast, his last recorded words were, God and my country. Viscount Admiral Horatio Nelson, 1st Viscount Nelson, 1st Duke of Bronte, died at half past four, three hours after being shot. He was 47 years old. The Battle of Trafalgar was won by the British in a devastating victory that the Franco-Spanish fleet never recovered from. They lost 22 ships. The British lost none, not one ship. The British had lost 1,700 men, but the Franco-Spanish force had lost 6,000 wounded or dead. But beyond the mere number crunching of human life, you cannot underestimate the effect this had on the national consciousness of the United Kingdom. Nelson had ended the greatest threat to Britain and ensured that the empire mastery of the seas for the modern era. In death, Nelson became a kind of secular deity, not unlike, say, King Arthur. He was an example of bold, decisive action, revered for his intelligence, leadership, courage and utter commitment to the kingdom that he served to the full measure. And before I finish with this episode, I do feel I've got some loose ends that to tie up here and there. Josiah Nisbet, Nelson's stepson, went on to marry and have children of his own before dying of pleurisy at age 50 in France. Lady Frances, also known as Fanny Nelson, lived in indifferent health for the rest of her life, moving to Paris where she lived with her son. Her eldest granddaughter, also named Frances, recalled her as having a good nature and being devoted to her husband's memory. She is reported as having told her granddaughter that when you are older, you may know what it is to have a broken heart. She returned to England and settled in Exmouth, where she died on May 4, 1831. Lady Emma Hamilton struggled financially in the years after Nelson's death. Sadly, his will was ignored and relatives who got the majority of the estate refused to pay Emma what she was due. In constant ill health, Emma drank and took laudanum and she died on the 15th of January 1815, aged 49. Her grave in Calais was lost during the bombings in World War II. After living among friends and relatives for years, Horatia married in 1822 and had 10 children many of whom had successful careers. Horatia never acknowledged publicly that she was the daughter of Emma Hamilton, and she died in 1881 at the age of 80. Horatio had died on the HMS Victory, yet the Victory served on until 1824 when she was relegated to being a harbour ship. Then, still serving, in 1922 she was preserved as a museum ship in Portsmouth. She's actually the world's oldest naval ship in commission with 242 years of service as of 2020. Truly a grand dame of the sea. And I'd like to think that Nelson would be happy that she does still serve. And what of the other admirals in Trafalgar? I wanted to add this because I think it rounds out the tale a little and it's interesting to see what happened to them. The Spanish commander, Admiral 
Federico Gravina had escaped with the remains of the fleet, yet he died five months later from injuries sustained during the battle. And Admiral Pierre-Charles Villeneuve? Well, he was captured, along with 200 other men under his command, and while held as a captive in Britain, he was allowed to attend Nelson's funeral. Freed in 1805, he returned back to France, where he continued applying for positions within the French Navy. Those requests went unanswered, presumably because Napoleon was unhappy with his losing of that battle. On April 22, 1806, he was found dead at the Hotel de la Patrie in Rennes, with six stab wounds to the left lung and one in the heart. A verdict of suicide was recorded. Sometimes victory and defeat don't seem that different. So here endeth the episode. The website is victoriangaslamp.com. You can email me victoriangaslamp at gmail.com. Any suggestions you might have for future episodes, I'm happy to look into what interests you. You are the ones listening. My Twitter is at VicGasLamp and my Instagram is VictorianGasLamp. I post on there a couple of times a week, so I hope you enjoy that as an aside to the podcast. Speaking of which, the next episode will be out in two weeks, so keep a lookout for that. And I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. 